This program has been made possible through the support of an independent grant from Daiichi Senkyo, Inc. From Susan G. Komen, this is Real Pink, a podcast exploring real stories, struggles, and triumphs related to breast cancer. We're taking the conversation from the doctor's office to your living room. BRCA mutations are hereditary cancer mutations that significantly elevate the risk of developing breast cancer and ovarian cancer. One of the reasons to undergo genetic testing is when a family member, such as a parent or sibling, is diagnosed with breast cancer at a young age. This is the story of today's guest. Erica Stallings underwent screening for BRCA genetic mutation, and what she learned throughout her journey was both eye-opening and life-changing. She has become an active patient advocate for increasing awareness of hereditary breast cancer among women of color and is here today to share her story. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Well, I'm so happy to meet you and and get to talk with you and and really just to hear your story. Um, I understand that your mother was diagnosed with breast cancer twice. So walk us through that. What was her experience like and how old were you during those experiences? Yes. Yeah, so the first time my, uh, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, this was in 1993. And I note that because it was a couple of years before scientists had actually discovered the BRCA1 and 2 genes and the fact that there were mutations in those genes that increased your risk of developing breast and as well as other types of cancer. And my mom was only 28 at the time, which is also something I want to emphasize because it's highly unusual to have breast cancer at that age. So my mom's 28. She finds her breast cancer doing a self-exam in the shower. It turns out to be stage one. She has a lumpectomy. She goes through chemotherapy and radiation. And I'm and I'm eight at the time. So I know that my mom is sick, but I don't really understand what cancer is. And so after my mom, you know, did all of her treatment, she was in remission for about 14 years. You know, and as I got older and I became a teenager, when I, was, I kind of had a better understanding of like, oh, my mom's had breast cancer. And I kind of vaguely knew that that might have implications for me in terms of like, hey, maybe I have to start my mammograms earlier or something like that. And then my senior year of college, I went to, I was, I studied at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My mom finds, you know, was pretty diligent about still doing monthly self-exam. She finds another lump. It turns out to be like a second breast cancer diagnosis in a different breast. And she also was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, which is a more aggressive form of breast cancer. And it is more common in black women. Mm. And because I was going to school at UNC, which has a really great cancer center, she decided to do her treatment there. And when she was at UNC, her oncologist said to her, well, you've had breast cancer twice, first time age 28, second time at the age of, you know, 42, this is highly unusual. You know, we, I'm going to refer you to genetic counseling and testing. And that's when we learned that my mom carries a, a BRCA2 mutation. And I was 21 at the time. Wow. I'm learning, I'm learning that she was a carrier. And, and so what, how did that impact you? I mean, did you make an immediate decision to get tested once she was diagnosed the second time? And, and if so, what led to that decision? Yes, I did not make the decision to get tested at that point. Okay. I think part of it was, you know, sort of dealing with all the emotions around my mom having cancer again, you know, because in my mind, I'm like, oh, my mom's been in remission for 14 years. She's right. you know, considered to be cured at that point. 
Mm. And she wound up having a double mastectomy because of the fact that she was a, a BRCA2 mutation carrier. And then she also eventually had her ovaries removed as well to deal with the ovarian cancer risk. I was also graduating college and then I was moving to Washington, D.C. to go to law school. So it didn't feel like a good time to undergo testing. And, and actually now I know this now, most physicians don't recommend that you undergo testing before the age of 25, mm. mostly because of sort of the like emotional impact and choices you have to make. So I decided I put it off and I'm, so I went to law school in DC. I'm working as an attorney at a large law firm. And when I turned 28, which was, you know, the age my mom had been diagnosed, I was like, oh, right. I probably need to figure out like what's going on with this, mm. you know, breast cancer gene situation. Mm-hmm. So I made an appointment. I made a, it was interesting. I made an appointment at Memorial Sloan Kettering and they had a really long wait list to see a genetic counselor because there's a shortage of genetic counselors in the United States. So I decided someone referred me to this really great oncologist at NYU and I had my genetic counseling and testing done in June, 2014. And I, mm. and at that point I had, I was 29. Okay. And, and what, if you, if you don't mind me asking, what were the results of that? Yeah. So I learned, so I had the, the testing done and just for anyone who's listening, who's unfamiliar with genetic counseling and testing, what happens during the appointment is that you actually go over your family history of various cancers, both on your mom's side of the family and your dad's side of the family. And some of the information that is significant is you know, who's had cancer, what type of cancer, like age of diagnosis. Hmm. And then in my, in my instance, I also brought a copy of my mom's, her test results, Mm -hmm. because if you carry, if you have a mutation, you have a 50% chance of passing it on to your child. So what they're looking for, for someone like me, is they're looking to see if I inherited that specific mutation. Right. So they did a blood draw. I get the results three weeks later, and I found out that I had inherited the BRCA2 mutation from my mom. Hmm. Wow, that's that's tough. And, and I'd imagine that, I mean, even with your family history, getting a positive test result was probably pretty shocking. I mean, who was in your support system to help you through that? And, and sort of how did you deal with that? Yeah, I tell people often when I talk about this experience, that even if you kind of, your rational part of your brain knows that you have a 50% chance of having it. And if, even if you've gone online and done research, you know, nothing I think can mentally emotionally prepare you to hear that information Yeah. in terms of my support system. I feel really fortunate in that the team that I had at NYU was just really outstanding. You know, the oncologist who did my genetic uh, counseling testing, her name is Julia Smith. She works with a lot of women in their 20s and 30s who are high risk, either due to just a family history or because they carry a hereditary cancer mutation. So and she was a great resource. And I'm also like oddly fortunate that my college roommate and best friend is a doctor who is married to a cancer researcher. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> you know, they, I know, right? I uh, didn't know when we met, you know, back in 2003, like how important that friendship would be. Um, yeah. So, you know, her and her husband were both like great resources. Mm. I was also really fortunate. You know, I had a couple of friends from law school who, you know, who lived in New York. I was doing mm. everything in New York, you know, who would go to appointments with me and everything like that. So, oh, that's great. yeah, I really, it, obviously my mom, uh, you yeah. know, so yeah, yeah, I was really fortunate to just have a really supportive circle of family and friends. 
That's so important. You know, I've, I've talked to so many people on this show about that, but just, just being vulnerable and being willing to be helped by family and friends is so critical to getting through difficult things. And so, so talk next about, I mean, what were the implications of this test result? What happened next? What did that look like from, from doctor's appointments to medical bills to just sort of everything else? Yeah. So, so one thing, you know, again, to maybe educate listeners who are not as familiar with the world of hereditary cancer genetics. So when you have a BRCA, I have a BRCA2 mutation. And so it's not just associated with a high risk of developing breast cancer. It also puts you at a higher risk for developing ovarian cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, and melanoma. Hmm. And when I say a high risk of developing breast cancer, you know, the average person's risk of developing breast cancer is about 12 to 13%. Mm-hmm. But for individuals who carry a BRCA2 mutation, it goes up, it's somewhere between like 60 to 70% lifetime mm. risk. So what that meant, so getting the news, what that meant for me from like a very immediate standpoint was when, you know, the doctors had looked at my test results and they looked at my mom's, you know, my mom's history of when she had had breast cancer. And so their recommendation to me was to have a preventative mastectomy as soon, like as soon as I could schedule it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that meant, you know, first getting, you know, one, having to get mammograms and MRIs to make sure that there weren't already any cancerous cells there. And then it was going through the process of like finding the breast surgeon and the plastic surgeon who would do the, who would actually do the mastectomy Mm -hmm. and then actually kind of figuring out like what I knew I wanted to undergo reconstruction. So figuring out like what the reconstruction process was going to be like. Mm -hmm. So I think really starting, I mean, I got the test results. I got the results in July of 2014 and pretty much between like August 2014 and December 2014, I, I felt like I was at the doctor like once a week because in wow. addition to like scheduling and figuring out the mastectomy, I had to start seeing someone or I had to start seeing more providers to help me manage all the other risks. So mm. for the ovarian, so like I'm at higher risk for developing ovarian cancer. So now I see, you know, a specialist OBGYN, you know, who does who like does a transvaginal ultrasound every six months and she does blood work to see if there's any elevated markers. I started seeing a dermatologist to check for any signs of melanoma. I started seeing an ophthalmologist because you, most common places you get melanoma are actually in your eyes and in your skin. So I learned something new today. I mean, I learned something new at that time. I learned something new today. Okay. All right. I do not have to start colon cancer screening for another couple of years. So, cause I'm 36. So I think I'll start when I'm 38. And I have met with a specialist about the pancreatic cancer risk, but there's really not much screening that they're able to do for that. Right. And I know you asked me about, you know, you asked me about bills. So I was really fortunate in that I had pretty great health insurance for my job at the firm. And it is covered, you know, because I was having the mastectomy due to the BRCA mutation, mm. you know, that was covered by insurance, including the the reconstruction process. Mm. So, you know, I think with my insurance given, it was like an 80-20. So like, you know, insurance covered 80%. I was responsible for the remaining 20%. But then once I hit like, you know, the deductible, thank you, Obamacare, right? right. Obamacare puts yeah. in the insurance. There's like only so much. There's like an out of pocket maximum. Yeah. So thank you yeah. very much. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think it was, I owed somewhere between like three to $4,000 that I okay. basically okay. put on like a payment plan. And I was like, yeah. you know, I'll pay it. I'll pay it when I get to wow. it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. That's a really helpful, helpful overview. And 
And so you mentioned you mentioned going to all the doctors and, and doing all the checks and all the testing and everything else. What what other courses of action did you decide to take with your doctors? Yeah. So, you know, in addition to having the mastectomy and and when I the type of mastectomy I had, I had what's known as like a nipple sparing mastectomy, hmm. which, you know, in 2014 was it was new-ish, or they had hmm. kind of finally like done the research, they felt comfortable doing that. And I also had what's known as like direct to implant surgery. So I had, you know, I had my mastectomy and I actually was fortunate that I woke up with the implants mm, or the reconstruction okay. process already completed. Mm-hmm. So, um, my, you know, I don't have a family history of ovarian cancer. So in right. terms of dealing with the ovarian cancer risk right now, I just do this. I do sort test. of surveillance every six months. Right. You know, mm-hmm. the common sort of recommendation for people who have BRCA2 mutations is to have their ovaries removed around like age 39, 40. Mm-hmm. I feel pretty hopeful. There is a lot of research being done. People like scientists actually think ovarian cancer first develops in the fallopian tubes and then migrates mm-hmm. to the ovary. So mm-hmm. they are doing some clinical trials to see, you know, what happens if you just take out the fallopian tubes and then mm-hmm. take the ovaries out after the patient has gone through a natural menopause. Right. So I'm hoping that that science gets better. Yeah. Uh, I see, and I see my, you know, I see my dermatologist and my optim- ophthalmologist once a year for the melanoma okay. screenings. Okay. And so I, I mentioned this in the intro and I want to, I want to dive into that just a little bit here. So I know you have the goal of raising awareness, particular as it relates to health disparities. Can you just tell me a little bit about the work that you've done in that area? Yeah. So I don't, I don't think this came in the intro. So I'm a lawyer by day. And so I think that means that I like to read, I kind of just like really like to, to dive into stuff. And so when I was going through my own experience of learning that I had this mutation and preparing for surgery, I was, I was, I started to kind of go online and see if I could find other patient stories to give me information. And I didn't see, I mean, I didn't find any from women of color sort of talking about this, this experience of being what's called a previvor, which is someone who carries a mutation, but has not had an active cancer diagnosis. Mm. So I was like, well, that can't be possible. I was like, oh, that can't be possible. But I decided to write about my own experience um, in 2014 when I was sort of preparing for surgery. And I just started doing more research and really learning that there are, I mean, I think we know that there are racial disparities that exist with respect to breast cancer in the United States. Mm -hmm. But even when we're talking about this, like who actually gets access to genetic counseling and testing, Mm -hmm. there are are racial disparities as well, right? Like black women are are less likely to undergo genetic counseling testing, even when they meet the national criteria for who should be referred to genetic mm-hmm. counseling testing. And, but we know, right, if you, if you know that there's this population of people who are super high risk, and yep. if you can find them early and either have them take risk-reducing procedures like I did, or at least like make sure that they're undergoing surveillance, you can either, right. you know, you can catch cancer when it's much more treatable. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the work that I've done, I do a lot of writing and speaking on the topic, you know, just you know trying to raise awareness and some of that includes, you know, like I'm, because I'm a lawyer, a lot of times I'll work with like bar associations or like with women's initiatives at law firms to like come in and do workshops about, you know, knowing your like, why is it important to know your family history of, of cancer? Yep. Why is it important if you do have a family history to undergo genetic counseling testing? What is that? What is a genetic counselor? You know, it's not information that people have a lot of exposure to. And so, right. Uh, I also work with, so, so the Bassler Center for BRCA is a research center 
at University of Pennsylvania. And the only thing that they do is a research. Uh, they're, you know, they're trying to find a way to stop cancers caused by BRCA mutations. That's the only thing that they research. Okay. So I've been involved with them in two ways. I am the founding co-chair of the Young Leadership Council, which raises money for cancer research. So every year we, we, we do a variety of fundraising activities to raise money. And then we pick a young investigator to donate those funds to. Because, yeah, because often, you know, if you're you're new as a for younger researchers, it can be harder to obtain grant funding. So we that's why we focus on that group. And then a few months ago, I helped them launch an initiative called uh, Black and BRCA, which Mm -hmm. is to provide tailored information to black patients and families about hereditary cancer. So one of the things that we're doing uh, in June, June, the week of June 17th is National Black, I can't, I'm not gonna remember. It's National Black Cancer Fam- Family Week. Okay. So we're so we're doing a panel, uh, which I'm moderating, but it'll be myself, a genetic counselor, an oncologist, and a patient, just really talking about how do you have these conversations about family health history? What mm. happens in a genetic counselor counseling appointment? How do you find a genetic counselor? Does yeah. insurance cover it? If you if you do have a mutation, how do you talk to your family about it? Right. Yeah. So it's it's really just trying to like do the work all the time. Yeah, no, <laughs> educate as many people as possible. That's that's great, and so and it's just it's so important, uh, and I really appreciate that you're doing that work. So, last question, Erica. This has been so great, so informative, um, inspiring. If you could leave our audience with one piece of advice that you've learned along your journey, what would that advice be? Ooh, I think I'm gonna cheat real quick and give two. I would say the first is to like ask for help. And I talked about how important my support network was, and it it really was. And this is a hard, like if you are someone who is dealing with a breast cancer diagnosis or, you know, learning you have a mutation, like it's really heavy information and just like reaching out, letting people know what you need, asking for help is super important. Mm -hmm. My other really quick one is, you know, I think people have to do it on their own timeline when they're emotionally ready to do it. But I think there is a lot of power in like sharing your story and talking about your experience. You know, I find that, so many people reach out to me because they've seen something that I've written or they've listened to a podcast and that is very meaningful to me. Hmm. That's so great. And you're right. I mean, the, the more you can share your story and inspire others and, and, and with the strength that you've had to go through this, the, the more, you know, the better outcomes they'll have as well. Right. Uh, and that's so, so, so important. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, Erica, this has been great. Uh, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Real Pink, a weekly podcast by Susan G. Komen. For more episodes, visit realpink.komen.org. And for more on breast cancer, visit komen.org. Make sure to check out at Susan G. Komen on social media. I'm your host, Adam. You can find me on Twitter at AJ Walker or on my blog, adamjwalker.com. This program has been made possible through the support of an independent grant from Daiichi Senkyo, Inc.